we should be really happy that we were born in the previous generation. This next generation of kids are amazing, and they're they're going to destroy and eat all, all our lunches. And I'm super excited for them to make me unemployed or retired, depending on how it goes. <laughs> Hey friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. Today we're joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic and deep lover of Ice Cubes, um, Anil Dasgupta, co-founder and CPO of First Light Games, and Seb Park, venture partner at Bigcraft Ventures. Seb, long time no see. Good to Thanks have you here. Back. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes hard being a venture partner and an entrepreneur at the same time. You basically find yourself waking up and realizing you haven't called your mother in three months. Oh no! Did you call your mother? I did yesterday. <laughs> I felt very bad about it. I was like, "Oh, how's your summer been?" <laughs> Is it summer still? Because in England, it's already fall with rain and fallen leaves. You know, I have to say, I understand. I mean, I mean, rest in peace to Queen and everyone else. But I understand that it has to be the reason why they had such imperial tendencies. Was just how awful that island is. <laughs> Wow, deep, deep, definitive <laughs> thoughts here. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know how I can save this. Maybe we'll move on. Um, Aaron, do you, I? Th- I think you have a, a response from Anu on your ice love. Yeah, I wasn't expecting when you asked. You asked Manu what his most memorable part of Gamescom was, and then he called out the one time that I admired an ice cube. It, 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 threw, it threw me off. I wasn't expecting it. But, but to add slightly more context behind what was, what was said, so I went to Hawaii a while back. I went to a, a cocktail bar um, called uh, Bar Leather Apron, which I highly recommend. And when I was there, I got a drink that had this perfect and I mean like absolutely perfect giant sphere ice cube. And, and at the time I hadn't thought like anything about ice in my life because you know, why would I, but then I complimented the ice cube and the, the, the bartender mixologist guy, he, he told me all about it. He said that they, they use a certain type of water. They boil it for a certain amount of time at a certain temperature which helps like build like a clear and like well-rounded consistency. Then they like made purpose-built tools to shape it like exactly to their specs, and then they freeze it a certain way for a certain amount of time to be used like for a specific shift in a specific evening. And, uh, <laughs> and then I got a couple <laughs> more more drinks, and they were like these like ice of like different shapes. And, and stuff that were like also perfect. It just blew me away. It blew me away, like how there could be so much diligence and art and something um, so mundane as ice cubes. So now when I go to cocktail bars, um, which I like rarely ever do, but I, I guess I went with Manu <laughs> and I totally judge them like way more by the quality of their ice than I do by their drinks. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever because I don't even know if I've ever made an ice cube in my life, but I'm. I'm just so snooty about ice cubes whenever I, I get drinks now because of that that one place I went to that spoiled me. So so there's the backstory. That there's... that is so passionate. I'm waiting for your second venture to be like Ice Cube Monthly, the podcast or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. You talk about what's hot or what's cold in the ice cube oh. world. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's really good. That's really good. You know, ice cubes are a bit of a leading indicator of the of the quality of the bar, though. I like. I don't disagree with that. It's a little bit like how you know people judge Japanese sushi restaurants on the quality of their tamago, their their egg souffle, right? It's like it's a leading indicator as to how much you care. Well, the Metacasa has been many things. We've been a podcast about geology, about um, dog puzzles, and now also about ice. So we're, <laughs> we're branching out, everyone. Yeah, wonder what's um, next. What's next is uh, Anil's going to tell us about Blast Royale's. Was it a game update? Are you on a marketplace? Marketplace. Well, I, I, I will give you some some interesting news actually, because you know Web three is kind of like the wild west. No one really knows how to navigate their way through that, and it, there's super interesting stuff happening there. So I'll give you a little anecdote about what happened to us in the last week, and I think this will open your eyes a lot about the sort of problems and. Um, exciting things that are happening in this space. So I think our game, unlike a lot of sort of NFT or Web3 projects, is like very gamer focused because our team is like, you know, intrinsically built games from the ground up, all nerds. So in our community, rather than having like speculators per se, we have a lot of players. Like they love the game. They play the game every day. We do streams of them. We do challenge them that they like it. So what's interesting is that these guys, they are not crypto savvy, not crypto savvy at all. So we have to win them over a different way to explain them like, why are you even caring about NFTs? Why do you want them in the game? So now we have a version of the game that you can only play the game if you have NFTs that work on our marketplace, although this is like on testnet, so it's not on the mainnet. So try explaining all of those concepts to someone who loves games, but does not know what NFTs or crypto is, right? And that was the challenge that we faced. Now, because we've built up so much good trust with them and we have a good game, they're like, okay, look, we'll do whatever it takes just to play the game because we want to play the game. So they kind of like navigated through the funnel. And then they would enjoy it. But here's sort of like the boomer moment of, of what happened. So when we were making our marketplace, because we wanted to get it like rolled out pretty quickly so people could play the game, we didn't optimize it for mobile. So it's not supported mobile uh, officially right now. So people would start playing the game and then be like, well, how can I connect to the marketplace? I'm like, oh, it's easy, dude. Just use your PC and you can log into it. <laughs> and they're like, who has a PC? And I'm yeah. like, what do you mean who has a PC? And like, these guys are like between 16 and 24. And they're like, if, they, if I need to play this for my PC, I'm out. I'm not playing this game anymore. And so this was this moment where I felt like, forget Boomer. It's Millennial, the new Boomer. Because we just assume that all these guys who chat to us on Discord all day long must have a PC to do that. But they're not. They're doing it on their phone, in class, in lesson, in uni, whatever. So anyway, we managed to work hard and we got them into the game and they managed to navigate their way through. And we, we sort of found a way to do it and they got in. Um, and then what was interesting is to begin with, there was sort of like a lot of anti, you know, why, why this is even matter. And I think like, this is the, like the big thing that people need to solve. So there's a lot of hate around NFTs at the moment, understandably, because, you know, it's, it's a volatile market. It's not the kind of best thing, but how do you explain to gamers? Like, what is the benefit? Like, why would I care? Uh, and it's interesting to just kind of off air, a few of us were talking about Magic the Gathering. And that's kind of the analogy that I always use. So I too used to play Magic the Gathering as a kid. And for me, it's kind of easy to understand sort of what an NFT is, because if I buy the cards, then it's my card. So I could sell it to somebody else. I could trade it. When my wife tells me it's time to stop playing video games, and we need to raise a family, I can just sell my collection and I can, you know, fund the university studies with it, et cetera, et cetera. So 
they, they do actually get that. And what's really cool is they've actually kind of gamified the marketplace. And we see that like in our Discord, people are like, hey, I'm selling my shotgun. Who wants to get in? Great deal. And it's like a terrible shotgun. They just want to make enough blast so that they can buy like the, the good item in the game. And they get it. And what's also cool is that like, the idea what we're trying to sell it to gamers is like making builds. So it's a bit like Magic the Gathering when you make decks, like what's the best deck? So we started off with like um, the DPS build. So people are very quickly, I just want to have the items that I do the most damage as fast as possible to one shot kill you. But then that was quickly countered by the speed build. Some people worked out that if you make your character really, really fast, you can just run around the guy that does the DPS. And even though you need to hit them five times, you can do that that many times. Well, now we're on like generation three of the meta. So now we've got like the tank build. And the tank build is that you can withstand so much damage that the fast guys, even though it's really hard to get a hit, they can't get you. So yeah. I'm rambling a bit, but you have all this like really interesting thing going on. And I find it fascinating because I think like this is the thing that sometimes you get a lot of people discussing things and hot takes and I think this and I think that. But when you're actually in it, in the trenches, on the front row, seeing some of those things is very interesting. And, you know, this is probably about the 12th time already where something has happened either good or bad that we didn't expect. And it's changed our perception of what we need to do going forward. And that's the thing that I really like. And what I think the biggest thing that we're learning is that I feel like what Web3 is really giving people is like ownership over their game. And I don't even necessarily just mean through like the, the sort of digital asset sites, but I mean that the ownership of like, I get to choose like how the game goes forward. Like these guys are listening to me and I'm interested in working or giving my time to this game because that's something that's missing. Like, you know, um, imagine like in the Matrix when it's like red pill, blue pill. What if Maria, everything I told you about games development was wrong? What if there's another way to develop games? And like, this is the way. So I can tell some more another time, but I just found it super interesting. And I also felt more old this week than I think I ever have in the last 10 years. Um, Some people even think tablets are PCs. That's what some people in our community think. They think you're a boomer if you have a tablet. Well, Um, I don't have neither tablet nor a PC. So I'm young. So you're you're hip. You're one of the cool kids. I am hip. Yeah, that's that's interesting because you don't need Web3 to listen to a community. I was agreeing with you all the way until that that part. Is that how does true ownership in listening come from blockchain? Well, that's where you can help because I think that's another topic for another day. But that's okay, where I feel yeah, like the yeah, NFTs. Well, I feel like NFTs and tokenization can help with that, right? And you're rewarded for getting in early. It's a bit like kickstarting. But when oh, you okay. kickstart a project, you don't really get any benefit other than the thing that you signed up for with the tier. But again, like Magic the Gathering. So I once bought a card called Time Walk. Seb will probably know what that card does. It's pretty overpowered. You really can pay. You can really play. You really can pay for your children's uh, university. (laughs) I was going to say that that card is now worth quite a lot of money. So I remember I spent, I think, 300 pounds on it, like when I was maybe 15 years old. And now it's probably worth about, I don't know, 20. Is this worth a lot of like 20K? It's it's worth a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow, you had 300 pounds for a card when you were 15. I, well, actually, I won the <laughs> tournament to get to get the money to do it. So they, anyway, wow. we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think we're running a bit out of time. But is there anything from the Nintendo Direct or PlayStation State of Play that got you excited? I'm just stoked Anyone? for God New of War. Legend of Zelda. Yeah, yeah. New Legend of Zelda. And God for of me, War. Uh, God of War Ragnarok. I just can't can't wait. It looks so good. Are you going to disappear in November? It's coming out in I, November, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I might, I might disappear. It'll be hard to keep me from from jumping straight in. Well, 
I was still glued to the fact that Tunic is going to be on PlayStation in a couple weeks. Don't care about all of these AAA games. I just what about Goldeneye? <laughs> Goldeneye on, on, on the Switch. Oh, uh, yeah. Are, are you serious? Are you excited for it? Yeah. Love Goldeneye. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just checking. All right. So today we're going to be talking about uh, Scopely acquired Stumble Guys. We'll dive into that a bit. Um, Ubisoft strategy, because since the news last week that we briefly discussed about Tencent acquiring uh, an additional stake in Ubisoft, there's been a bunch of news announced from their Ubisoft forward. And we're also going to dive into the learnings from the Roblox developer conference that Seb attended. So <laughs> I'll do a very quick summary to kick off the Scopely acquiring uh, Stumble Guys. Um, so Summer Guys was developed by Kitka Games, a nine-person studio from Finland. And this is extremely impressive because nine people developed a mobile game that has a 20 million DAU. Whoa. Uh, the purchase price wasn't disclosed, and the CEO of Kitka Games mentioned that they're a small game studio and they were looking for a partner to take Stumble Guys into the next um, into the next level because at their heart they're passionate about the development process. So I assume now that Stumble Guys has reached the stage of success with the core loop and the overall monetization it goes into a live ops growth mode and that's not their expertise and that is scopely's expertise i don't think there's a plan confirmed about whether they're hiring the employees of kicker games because they only acquired the game they didn't acquire the studio it's only the game so just a few uh, timelines so stumble guys as you can tell by the name uh, was originally a clone of fall guys and Fall Guys was released on Steam and PlayStation in August 2020. Stumble Guys released on Google Play September 2020, so a month after Fall Guys was released on um, the platforms I mentioned. And then they went to the App Store in February thereafter and, and in October of 2021 onto Steam as a premium game. Whilst on mobile, it was free to play. So there's some interesting interactions that I just want to highlight between Steam and mobile. I found this a bit surprising. I guess I didn't expect that the the Steam audience could have influenced so much the downloads of the mobile game. So StumbleGuys had a 50% discount on Steam in the Lunar Lunar New Year this year, um, and we see an uplift in the in the downloads during that month. And then, most importantly, it went free to play on Steam in April 2022, and then you just see a skyrocket. So they went the daily downloads went from 40k to around 220k. Yeah, blown away by that. Um, and then Fall Guys went free to play and launched on Switch, Xbox. They left Steam to go onto the Epic Games Store because Mediatonic is owned by Epic Games and they have cross platform. And then we see an additional skyrocket of daily downloads of Stumble Guys on mobile um, went to around 310k. So, all in all, that, that was from 40k at the beginning of the year to 310k of daily downloads. Yes, very, so Maria, very do, do, do you know one reason why that's the case? It's because if you type Fall Guys Mobile into Google, Stumble Guys yeah. comes up. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I, I was going to dive into that. I think it's yeah. extremely intelligent. I, I was looking into it. It's the advantage of being a clone of a non-mobile game, developing your clone as a mobile first experience and getting to the mobile market first with that level of quality. Um, and it worked for them. So do you, yeah, what do you think? Well, I'll go if it's okay, because yeah. I, I guess I've already chimed into it. Yeah, I, I find it super interesting on so many levels. I think a little bit of background here as well. Um, 
Mediatonic used to work with Scopely and they made a game called Yahtzee for them. And at one point there was like serious talk about uh, Mediatonic being bought by Scopely. And then Mediatonic released this game called Fall Guys and that kind of went out the window. So I guess that perhaps Scopely knew how powerful Stroke may have a bit of FOMO of not getting that company over the line. So I find that it's not surprising at all that Scopely of all people would buy this particular game, given that they may have been aware of its existence, you know, in the studio. I'm not sure how much shared. There's a bit of speculation, but, but the rest is definitely true there. So that's definitely one thing that I have on that. Scopely, I think, as you're right, they're really good at scaling games. They typically say that they only really purchase studios or games if they believe it can make 500 million US dollars a year in revenue. So they must see massive, you know, wow. potential in a game like this. And I believe it because they've proven that time and time again. Like they've done it, for example, with the Star Trek game, which is one that yeah. I didn't really think could do that. And they've proved that they could. So, um, I'm sure they would have done their R&D and like think that the KPIs are great and, and they can really work this angle. Coming back to the thing that I just said, I think the thing that really makes me laugh is um, I see this time and time again where sort of um, being overly corporate sometimes leads to your lunch money getting stolen by somebody else. So I think Zynga is the biggest example of this, where they had Farmville a long time ago and they never made a mobile version. Now, I remember I myself worked in this game called Smurfs Village and that was just Farmville, but with the Smurfs IP. And we got to number one top grossing on the app store. This was when there wasn't even the Google Play Store and we did really well. And then of course, years later, even though they then did release a mobile Farmville, they didn't do a very good job on it. And then Supercell came along with Payday and that just proved it again. So they're like, they failed twice in, in that regard. And I just think that like in this case, Mediatonic and Epic, they've done this acquisition for quite a long time now. Like I feel they might have been overly indexing on trying to make a very high quality mobile version of the game. And in the meantime, someone's come along and, and already got that. I, I find it quite scandalous that, yeah, if you type in mobile guys, sorry, a full guys mobile, <laughs> that another competitor comes up in terms of search engine optimization. That just feels like, I guess they make so much money that they don't really care. But um, I think it's very clever of Kitka Games, especially for nine people, shows that they've got a really good growth mindset and entrepreneurial ability but i just find it surprising that sometimes yeah like i say is it that they're too slow to move on it is it they don't really care uh, i'm not really sure there but um yeah i think the game's really good i think full guys it being mobile free to play just makes so much obvious sense it's a super fun game you can share of it um yeah Credits to things as, as a, you know, in a startup field myself, I always have a lot of respect for people that can get such massive traction with so few resources. I think it's an amazing story and really quite motivating. A year and a half ago, I had a, a conversation um, with, with Javier, the co-CEO of Scopely. And um, one thing I found interesting about what he was saying is that, you know, you know, you know, compared to other studios, like rather than being M&A first or co-development first or really like any type of structure first that you know they prefer to like work with games teams like as they really are just like talent and ltv first and are like willing to be flexible on the structure in which they they operate um and and how they publish games as long as it serves you know a large market there's a great like team uh, generally behind it and it has impressive long-term ltv potential um, but you know, a game like Stumble Guys coming to Scopely, in my opinion, you know, it makes all the sense of the world because you know that that tiny team, um, you know, like is now going to be, uh, you know, or the game made by the tiny team is going to just immediately be plugged into a larger ecosystem and technology platform. And if Scopely 
can really help the team expand its live ops capabilities in particular. Like that is good is what's going to have like the largest effect on LTV and competitive differentiation, at least in the near term, probably, which will, you know, then enable Scopely to get more aggressive with with UA. And, you know, we'll see if it works, but it's it's just the kind of thing that works particularly well in a company like Scopely. Like it and it wouldn't work in most places. Um uh, but, you know, there are a handful of publishers where it could make sense. And I, I think Scopely is probably about as good of a fit as you could get for this kind of game. The StumbleGuy's revenue per download is around $0.20. That, that is amazing for a game that's meant to be hyper-casual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think overall is an incredibly intelligent team. The more I was researching into the the history... I think it just shows you the the power of having a very small yet very talented team with that are have high business acumen, understanding opportunities of the market, being very good at designing monetize, a monetization layer that is deep enough for all levels from free to play to low spenders to to high spenders, a fun core loop that you can play with the with your friends, it's easy to pick up and go. I think they understood what changes they needed to make compared to Fall Guys to make it mobile first. So, for example, the lobbies are smaller so that the rounds are faster. They have a lot shorter sequences of announcing who's going into the next round and giving rewards. So I think it takes about three minutes for a full play if you reach the end. Or if you lose, you can continue witnessing to then go into the next one. It, it has, For me, it has so many parallels with what made Among Us work. And Among Us exploded, I believe it was also around October 2020. So they had a chance to analyze this and see, oh, okay, we can make remote group play um, by having all of these these features and other validation. Well, they they just went fast as well. That's my point is that where is Fall Guys Mobile? I mean, that game came out in 2020. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there should be a mobile version. Um, <laughs> and now they're going to end up copying the game that actually copied them, which makes me laugh when you get this sort of weird thing. And they'll probably always be one step behind because the other game is doing it. And, you know, Fall Guys, is it really an IP? Not really. I mean, to the end user, they don't really care so much for it. So unless right. they really, unless they were to call it, Fortnite full guys or something like that, which that might, well, I mean, that could be a relevant thing to do given the acquisition, if that's going to cheapen the CPI and really push it up. Um, but I agree with everything that's been said about yeah, the, the uh, admiration. Yeah, the most the important team. thing is just that timing. It's just so fast. August 2020 on Steam, Stumble Guys comes out on Google Play on September 2020. That's a three-week development cycle at best. And so we're talking about that type of rapid iteration while Fall Guys it's not their mistake, by the way. Like, I actually think it's actually a proper thing for them to have done is that they were capitalizing on their massive success on PC. Your first instinct shouldn't be to, okay, let's go switch to other platforms. It should be like monetizing yeah. and maximizing them. And you know, insofar as they eventually did sell to Epic, they, their outcome is pretty amazing, irrespective of the mo- of their mobile launcher, but not. It is interesting right now. I, I will say that Scopely and, you know, in the same vein, Tilting Point, and some of these other folks continue to deploy is particularly interesting. It doesn't sound as though everyone has great belief anymore as to their ability to drive traffic into games. And often, especially for hyper-casual games, really they're betting on their own ability to drive traffic. We'll see if the changes to like, you know, Ad Network 4.0 
allow people to monetize or drive better traffic in the next iteration of of the Apple App Store. But it is an interesting acquisition for that reason, in part because do we think that's going to grow? Do we think it's going to grow precipitously from 20 million DAU, which is usually a, you know, a holding point, to you know, 40 or 100? Irrespective of that, like we don't know the terms fully. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's always hard to tell. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough, especially for people on both sides, how much price matters, right? If price really matters for Scopely and price really should matter for the stumble guys, guys. So, and gals, I suppose. I actually don't know yeah. their team. So. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I think growth is definitely part of it. It's a big question, but I think just as much is probably about longevity because, mm-hmm. you know, this type of game in like a hyper competitive environment, um, you know, it had the potential I mean, the team, the team was smart, but it had the potential to be more of a, like a, a flash of the pan kind of experience where, you know, it explodes, you know, because of their, their great timing and whatever they differentiated compared to the competition. But you know, as the market shifts and as, you know, maybe Fall Guys goes to mobile, et cetera, um, it would have a harder time with a smaller team, like really putting in the work to like continue to drive that differentiated experience that, you know, keeps retention and, you know, just keeps the game above the pack. And so I think, you know, what Scopely could bring to the table, it's not just as much like the the audience driving, although, you know, maybe that's some of it and they probably have, you know, just smart capabilities in that in that team that a small team wouldn't have to kind of think about expanding UA, et cetera, and, you know, timing their moments. But if they can, you know, extend the longevity of this game, then it would have been otherwise through like more resources deployed and like the right ways for development and such. I think that is actually maybe where like just as much value, like longer term value creation could happen. But I don't know. I guess we'll we'll see how it shakes out. I mean, I I like oftentimes when you see acquisitions like this, it's more of a function of diminishing marginal returns on capital to yourself, right? So, uh, if you're lucky to have, or depending on where you stand, if you are lucky or unlucky to have gone through this, there are such massive deltas between. I remember the first like thousand dollars I saved versus the, the first like you know five figures amount I saved, and there's like massive deltas between you know making twenty grand a year. I think the next jump, at least in the U.S., is around 80 grand a year. And then the next uh, probably point in which your life changes a little bit more is around 280, 300, depending on what city in the United States you live. Uh, oftentimes, when I see small teams getting acquired by Scopely, it reminds me a lot of baseball. Now, granted, I have no idea what the demographic information of this podcast is, so this might be a horrendous reference. But <laughs> in, in baseball, you often see that players are under contract control from the team and that that contract pays a very small amount of money, relatively speaking. If they wait their full you know, seven years, then they can become a free agent and make hundreds of millions of dollars, or they'll never get there and they'll make zero. And so there's a strong incentive, especially for players in the you know, two, three years in, to basically be like, hey, I will give up massive percentages of my future earning from the expected value perspective in order to capture the gain today. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think, especially with this current economic environment, that's not a bad outcome for most studios right now. It's like, hey, like, we'll put money in your pocket. We'll be able to, therefore, allow you to continue to do your job, grow the game, do something you enjoy doing. But also, your kids get to go to university. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can buy, you can buy like, a three-bedroom house and move out of your one-bedroom apartment. Right? Like, th- these are some really interesting dynamics I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of in, in gaming. Whereas I think the last few years, especially in this bull run, 
and especially inside of uh, consumer mobile and uh, you know casual and mid-core mo- uh, mobile gaming, there was a real reticence to sell. You had to really come knocking on the door with a lot of money. Whereas today they're like, hey, like you know, there's a chance like half of Europe might not exist next week. Like we don't know. Do you want to like divest yourself and like um, diversify your assets? And so. I certainly think it's, you know, for people like Scopely and Tilting Point, these guys who have the capital to deploy, it's a really great spot for them right now. Uh, a brief comparison, as we were talking about overall revenue, Subway Surfers from Cybo, that's now Miniclip. Uh, the game's on Google Play's top 10 apps by downloads. So that's not just looking at games, it's looking at all the apps on Google Play. The absolute revenue they've had is $115 15 million. And it's been live since 2013. And Stumble Guys to the day, so since late 2020 to today, is around 45 million. So they're nearly half the way. And I think Subway when we're talking Surfers about- is quite ad driven though, because it, it has a very young demographic, right? Like that's a good that, point. Cause, yeah, because I, I I know that Subway Surfers like Opdow is like less than one cent. It's like non-existent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the most downloaded game of all time because every kid under the age of seven, it's like if your kid is crying, Subway Surfers is your answer. That's a free pro tip for anyone <laughs> listening. Again, I don't know the demographic, but you can thank me later. Right, right, right. This is um, so if we're really appealing to the baseball watching 45 plus demo <laughs> in the United States. Uh, the last, the last take I had on the on the topic is that. Is maybe the industry of new founders becoming comfortable of knowing what makes them happy, what part of the business makes them happy? Because working in a company that's developing a new game and you're going through that process and trying to release a success and then grow it to become sustainable, that challenge is very different to, okay, you have a successful game and now you're making these smaller gains by by optimizing um, how it performs. That's... That's a very different mindset and a different day to day, and it sounds that the decision as well that Kitka Games did is based is based on what what they enjoy the most, which is the development process. Yeah, I mean they probably don't even care that much for the game they made, as surprising as that might sound, because they essentially copied something and got it to market quickly. They realized there was an angle in the market that they could attack. So if you look at the deal. They get a lot of capital up front. They get to keep their entire team that work together on making games. And now they can work on that game. They can probably work on whatever game they ever they wanted to do and have fun doing it. And the game and the audience will enjoy the product because a really good team is going to buy it and look after it. So it seems like it's a great deal all around. And why this is one of those rare examples where they probably weren't interested in selling the studio because they didn't want to go down the sort of corporate wagon, but rather, as you say, enjoy the development process. And if you can do that once, they're going to be excited for what they can make next. Can you, re- can you relate to that as a a co-founder yourself do you yeah absolutely because i think it's like sometimes you know if i could make my dream game what would it be and the answer is very simple it'd be the fourth iteration of street fighter 3 the best fighting <laughs> game of all time if i was to make that game there'd probably be about five people that would play it one of which is me so do you want to spend hundreds of millions developing said game or do you want to make something that's going to be commercially viable you know you have to analyze the market look at what generations of buying games etc etc so it depends because i got it started in the industry as being like i I love games i love working on games working on games is one of the most fun things you can do it's like being in a rock band where you have to put people with very different talents together and hope it comes off so like me and our art director think about things in completely a different 
way, right? Left side of the brain versus right side of the brain. But when we come together, we can make something special. There's something really fun about that. And, you know, having this nucleus of an idea become reality is one of the most satisfying things out there. But working on a failed game, it turns out, isn't the most fun thing in the world either. So it's kind of like, sure, you know, on one angle, if you could just sort of like, say for me, if I was lucky enough that like we managed to exit the company, I think I would still make video games because I actually think it's more fun to make video games than it is to play them as crazy as as that that sounds. Um, Maybe I'm just a a sadomasochist. I don't know that I have that kind of opinion, but I can understand it that like, you know, deving with your friends is like really, really good fun, especially a small team. It's like wicked, wicked fun because, you know, it's very creative and, you know, seeing it all come together is an amazing thing. So I can totally uh, understand that kind of perspective. And sometimes when you go more into the business side of the industry and you start looking at ROI and returns and things like this, it does take you away from the thing that you fell in love with. And my own personal story is that when we started up, there was only three of us that I myself was developing again. It was a bit like playing New Game Plus in a real life video game. Oh, you've completed it once. Now you have to go back to the beginning, but now it's harder. So you've got to program again. And then as we scale up the company, I have to give away that, right? And I look at the team doing it. And I won't lie, sometimes when I see our designers and gameplay programmers coming up with a cool mechanic, I get jealous. I feel like, oh man, that used to be me that used to make that cool stuff. (laughs) Now I'm just that bozo that goes on podcasts and things like that but hey i love being on this podcast by the way but and you, we you love know, having you here you're not you know that's though. what it is so I, I can totally appreciate why it is and um yeah yeah I, I think it's a really good decision for them if that's their motivation which i suspect it is i think yeah. that's quite a vulnerable thing to share honestly thanks for sharing it because i think a, a lot of our listeners will actually relate to what you're saying Oh, I hope the people that do listen you know, do have that real love for games. I have to say one thing that I really like being part of this podcast in particular is that most of the people on it, I think, really are just sort of gamer geeks, you know, at their core. And, and that's what really got them into the industry, even if they're involved in it in an ancillary way. And I think it's like important never to sort of lose that thing. I often, people often, I don't know about you guys, but for example, how many games do you play in your personal life? What often happens is when you get involved in games, you actually play a lot less of them because <laughs> you've got work to do. And that's kind of so like sad. a sad thing. Yeah, it's it is. The saddest thing in the world. I, I wish I could say I, have, I, I just got a PlayStation 5. It's the first console I've owned in 10 years. <laughs> so, so wow. <laughs> we know Aaron's going to be playing Ragnarok. <laughs> I thought you were going to jump in there, Aaron. I'll try. Or are you going to say something? Nope. No. Okay. Well... I think we'll move on then to Ubisoft. Uh, is this you, now? It is me, yes. So right. Ubisoft ha- had an event recently called Ubisoft Forward. I guess it's like their own, it's quite common in the industry now for people to have their own events rather than going to E3 because they get a lot, a lot more exposure. By but the I way, poor E3. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I, do, I do get that I, I have to say um I, I can understand why though because when there's sort of like 57 games being announced you just get no share and right. it can affect sales so I, I understand why companies do this um but I have to say their one um is very interesting I think Ubisoft's a company that comes up quite often I think on the, the podcast because they do a lot of unusual things like you know they've tried doing like blockchain in some of their games and things like this so I think like the headlines that I want to go through one um there's a new Assassin's Creed game back after a two-year break which you know is a super big IP always interesting to talk about that I think the things that I found more interesting the, the big one for me was the fact that they're collaborating with Netflix in two ways so one Netflix is helping them to make mobile games which sounds 
kind of weird to me. Like, why does a studio that big need Netflix? So that's really what I think would be an interesting to discuss. But they are also going to be making an Assassin's Creed live action series, which I guess is going to tie in with one of the games that they're making. So that's super cool because this kind of like a evergreen IP and utilization has come up, I think, at least three times of the podcast I've been for. So this is like the biggest example of that I've seen yet. Uh, Tencent has increased its stake. Um, is that giving them the extra financial firepower to do some of these things? What does it mean for the company? They've always been remarkably sort of anti-takeover. You know, Vivendi tried to buy them many years ago and, it, you know, they're like, get lost. We want to be our own selves. So how does that play into it? They have a new Tom Clancy game in beta, also kind of interesting. Um, and some of the gameplay was interesting. It seemed like they were kind of going more towards sort of like a, well, the new Assassin's Creed, one of them is set in Japan, which I think is really cool. Are they going for sort of like the rise uh, in, or the resurgence of samurai-based games? Sekiro, Go to Tsushima, I can name some more that got popular. So lots of things to kind of go through. I'll, I'll hand it over to the panel as to which one they want to pick up. What, what, what most got your attention? And, and let's discuss it. Yeah, the, the Netflix thing in particular is something that I've, I've been thinking a lot about recently, but also important for Ubisoft, which is... As we see the saturation slash privacy law slash uh, just change in approach in terms of user acquisition, it's clear to, I think, a lot of observers that effectively, if you have an audience, it doesn't matter if you're Netflix or TikTok or Snapchat. That's a great audience to tap into from a game perspective. Because like, realistically, as a game developer, all you're looking for is, is an audience. Monetization comes secondary, frankly. Because like, once you have the audience, if you understand how to monetize, you understand how to monetize. And so I really did appreciate the approach that they're taking in terms of leveraging Netflix not only for this, but also for game making. It's very similar to not to spoil the first episode or second episode of the Game of Thrones show. The new Game of Thrones show actually ends if you stick through the like after credits to be effectively a large advertisement for their new mobile game, their new Game of Thrones mobile game. And it's really using these uh, outsized like leverage points in order to therefore push the IP to generate more content and to generate more eyeballs for the game itself. That to me was one of the most interesting things, especially inside of this announcement. In part because also... And, you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of people came out being like, what the heck is happening? As opposed <laughs> to understanding immediately, hey, like this is actually an insane value point that people are, uh, are starting to realize. Yeah, I, I, I've uh, been really bullish on the idea. Of, sorry, Maria. I, I was just going to say, I've been really bullish on the idea of like emerging like IP ecosystems with the sense that like you see it in a couple of ways. You see like one... Um, like there's the Call of Duty model where like an amazing brand that already is super popular and big is able to like spin up new game modes, go free to play on console PC, go, you know, free to play on mobile um, and be able to, you know, take like another like step function jump in their audience reach and revenue potential. Um, and there are a lot of brands that could also take similar types of approaches in their own ways. And I've always thought that Assassin's Creed um, would be a good candidate for being one of those just because of how like unique and flexible and big like that IP and audience is. And so, you know, being just one RPG game every other year, like really they could do a lot more than that. And so it's cool to see them trying to do that through both doing that, but also kind of spinning up maybe more like the 
the OG narrative kinds of games going to mobile, but then also, yeah, like doing, doing this Netflix thing, both having an Assassin's Creed TV show, um, and, uh, having, you know, like games in, in tandem with Netflix too, because, you know, what we've seen, you know, probably like the last big example of this, so I'm sure we've talked about previously was like when the Witcher came out on, on Netflix, that was a huge advertisement and, you know, it, for, you know, the books and the, the, the games and it made a pretty huge difference. And um, yeah, the Netflix homepage really is like one of the best marketing channels in the world um, by far. And Assassin's Creed, again, like a really incredible IP, like it actually has the possibility. It, I don't know like how, I don't know who's making the show or anything like that, but it it's the kind of IP that has the possibility to actually be pretty cool. And if they can make it cool, not only does that drive the value an expansion of the Assassin's Creed audience and brand. But if they can do like even like a game within Netflix, which, you know, like low downside for Ubisoft for trying something like that. It's a good like initial step for people to kind of take the jump from, oh, I just saw this cool TV show. Now there's a game on it. So, oh, wait, now there's like this entire gaming ecosystem behind it, too. So I'm I'm really excited about like the ideas that Assassin's Creed is pushing forward and all the different things they're trying to do uh, as always it boils down to execution like is the show going to be good are the mobile games really going to work can you know this like they're kind of building like the it, it used to be called like codename infinity i don't know if they gave a new name for it that sort of is like a hub yeah. for all the new assassin's creed expansions and stuff that come together like how is that really going to come together so i think there still are a lot of questions but um in theory like it could be a really cool step function increase for this IP too. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I want to dig into the infinity a little bit because I was going into a deep dive of all of the their strategic pillars. That it seems like they they took a good look at what they were doing and set the the scene for the upcoming years. Um, now I might be this is big speculation, but Tencent acquired a larger stake in the relationship with Ubisoft. One of the games that are being released on Netflix, I think it's Netflix, or is it? Because they're developing a mobile game that's not with Netflix. It's a separate Assassin's Creed mobile RPG. So I can see you watch the the TV series, you play the free game that comes with your Netflix subscription that's about Assassin's Creed, has no monetization, download the other game that has a load of monetization, gets you into their ecosystem, and then it's all this tapping into, they have a history of content that people can buy. So what's a better live ops than consolidating everything in a single hub of Infinity? They didn't share too many details, but it's meant to show you the overarching narrative and get you involved in the lore. So a lot of what Destiny does is get players stuck into the, the lore and the fantasy, give them the ability to quickly buy um, the contents and jump into and play into play all of the games without having to buy them separately. And another thing that I found very interesting is that they're also breaking down the concept that specific studios work on one of the franchise games. So for example, Quebec, and then there's another one where they usually divide it up. But with a pandemic and remote working, they're trying to enable wherever you are in the world, whatever studio you're a part of, you can intermingle and develop games amongst yourselves. So I think that will also be interesting to see the consequences that the pandemic had. 
and, and whether that will unlock new creative potential within within Ubisoft. I was just going to ask Anil uh, about the the Project Infinity. Do you do you know like how that is going to work? Did they say anything? I'm just curious, like how like how would that even like work on console, for example, where Assassin's Creed is, you know, probably the biggest. They like to keep their cards close to their chest, put it that way. So we we don't yeah. know. There's a lot of speculation. Um, uh, let's see what Seb has to say as well. I've got some thoughts on this. Sorry, but on this, I think the only yeah. thing that came to mind when I was trying to picture is, for example, if you play Borderlands, you can buy Borderlands through that. Or if you play the Final Fantasy X remaster, it gives you the upsell in the loading screens by other stuff. So that could be an MVP, but I don't know. Sorry, Seb. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because a lot of what Ubisoft is good at, and I think this is also shared by Take-Two, is that they tend to look a bit further into the future than some of their colleagues inside of North America uh, in terms of the publishing side. And wh- one thing that we're seeing very clearly in the Fendi announcement is it's, it's almost as though the precious resource of free attention is being dried up, right? It's, it's reminiscent of like the guano trade of like the ni- 18th or 19th century, right? It's like a bunch of things that are super important. There's really no reason to pressurize or generate nitrogen out of the air. That's too expensive. But once guano becomes super expensive, once nitrogen is hard to find, suddenly everything else makes more sense. And so in a similar vein, part of the reason, at least from my purview, as to why Ubisoft cares about this type of expansion is before, to your point, Maria, they like to control everything. They, ha- they could control everything. There was no additional cost to relative to the cost of acquisition of users. Now in this more modern 2022, but I think even looking forward to 23, 24, 25, what they're starting to say is like, actually, tension is going to become harder and harder to acquire. We need to actually trade some of our own you know, empire in order to make sure that we can still mine the attention we need to. And so that, that seems to be the driving thesis for around these guys are doing. And very similar to your point around Borderlands, it's very similar, I think, also to the Straw Selnick and the Take-Two guys as to how they think about their product lines and their evolution. They're probably actually... Amusing, I think the Take-Two guys are probably a few years ahead of, of uh, Ubisoft in terms of figuring out sort of the next frontier of, of thinking around this. Yeah, they also announced that after the Mirage, which is the new Assassin's Creed, they're entering a Gen 3 of Assassin's Creed, where they're taking their, their learnings from Gen 1 and 2 and building the next generation of what an Assassin's Creed game is. Curious to see what that's going to be about. I think they're bringing multiplayer back. For at least one of their games that we haven't seen since, is it Black Black Skull? Black yeah, Black? yeah, the the Pirates one, which was one of the best ones in the franchise. Actually, yeah. I have to totally agree with with Seb. By the way, I think Ubisoft traditionally has been a very strategic company. It hasn't always come off, but Assassin's Creed itself was a very strategic hit, where they deliberately got the game onto the PS3 really early. It came out in the first month. It was one of the launch titles, I believe. And it was pretty poor as a game, but the engine was very impressive. But because there was no other games really to play, it sold quite well. And then Assassin's Creed 2 came out, and that was the game with the engine, and that really did well. And then the IP kind of took off from there. So their gamble was that you can establish a new IP on the console if you get it out early. And they were rewarded with it. Other people tried to clone that kind of approach with PS4 and weren't so successful, but they certainly were. But also in Ubisoft's portfolio, I mean, they've tried to do NFTs and blockchain, right? With their Quartz initiative, it failed, but they were thinking ahead. They tried to make their own launcher with Ubisoft Connect, which also failed, but they were thinking ahead. And I agree that that's their kind of line in thinking is that they're not just thinking about like copying what's sort of popular, but more they're sort of trying to think, how can we get an unfair advantage? That means five years, 10 years down the line, we have something that people 
people can't catch up with. And I think Assassin's Creed is probably the best thing I've seen them do in my lifetime in the sense that you've met to make an IP that is now going on for over a decade and has sold that many copies and is that well known. Uh, has made a, a live action movie. Now a live action series is coming. Uh, that is the benefits of what strategic planning and, you know, really going for it can pull off. Um, so they definitely think like that. And I think a lot of other companies don't. What I would say though is I think they have had very mixed results. So for as successful as Assassin's Creed was, they tried something similar to that with Watchdogs and that was kind of like a blunder. So if they were taking their learnings from Assassin's Creed onto Watchdogs, that didn't work. So there's no kind of saying that what they're learning will work for the next one. But I don't want to be too unfair on them. I think that I actually admire the fact that unlike other companies, they seem to, that seems to be something as part of their DNA. I wonder if like in their sort of private company values in their head office, it's like, you know, they've got some sort of weird cliche. It's like, you know, the long-term planning is going to win it. You know, some Japanese proverb or something like that from the art of war Sun Tzu or something like that. And, <laughs> and they stick to it because they have that mantra. Oh, that reminds me, I lost my train of thought. With the Tencent increasing their stake in Ubisoft, I believe one of their mobile games is based is going to be set in China. So part of their strategy could be in, um, for their penetration to the Chinese market. So yeah, that, that all makes a lot of sense. The only thing I have to mention is that, come on, Ubisoft, we need more Assassin's Creed with some female non-binary characters. It's always a strong male leading the journey through history. They've never done a female assassin yet, have they? As the no, lead character. You, they have appeared well, in the game. The, the past two, you can like pick right. like what you play as, male or female. But, but then yeah. what they use on their marketing materials and all of that, you don't usually see the two. Less. Yeah, I, I, yeah sorry, I was just going to add a couple of last oh, thoughts. I, I know like Ubisoft is, um, you know, they are trying to be more mobile first i guess as they're saying it which you know you know with the trends of the market like sure that makes sense and i don't think they've done a very successful job of that so far although we know that they have a lot of um games in development and you know we kind of mentioned you know ip ecosystems around assassin's creed really like the division and all the tom clancy stuff is sort of like their other realm of like really pushing for that kind of ecosystem they have a bunch of mobile games in development there that I'm not sure how they will do, uh, but you know this this like newer agreement with Tencent is probably like the biggest reason to start being more optimistic about what they could do um, on on mobile because I expect we'll see a lot more um, co development and a lot more like like you mentioned like the mobile Assassin's Creed game is gonna you know be China based. Yeah, which Tim could is gonna make it. On they? Like I, I would. They didn't announce it, but I would bet that immediately that that's that's what this announcement really yeah. is. I should have mentioned actually. So thank you for for bringing that up. Yeah. So I'm I'm really curious to see how how this changes their trajectory on mobile and how they they operate in that way. It could be it could be a pretty big deal. Um, the the last thing I wanted to say was you know last week you mentioned um, like briefly in the intro um, that you know this deal that Tencent increasing their shares taking place through the family holding company, but you weren't sure why. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a complex transaction, so I don't. I don't know the whys behind like all the all the details, like why Tencent is paying so much of a higher price and, and all of that. But um, I just wanted to quickly address that, and I think it really boils down to one word, which is control. Um, and uh, you know, over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of talking and interest about maybe Ubisoft 
selling itself, getting, you know, roped into M&A or, you know, strategic investors or activists, private equity coming in and helping the company, you know, refocus and, you know, slim down and whatever that could turn into. And and this move basically is Tencent buying through the family holding company um, with, you know, there's some details about like Tencent is not going to have as much voting power um, and things like that. And, and really, this just boils down to the family now, you know, through their company has a larger stake in the business and has more control. And it would, it's now just that much harder for any activists to come and do anything um, when when it's structured this way. So it really is basically saying like goodbye to all the 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 rumors of M&A and like whatever could have happened. And it's just saying like solidifying like, hey, this family is still in control for whatever the next era of Ubisoft is going to be. Um, and that I think that helps explain why, like when this deal took place, even though Tencent bought at a higher price, why the stock went down, because it basically is just saying, yeah, the, the odds of them getting acquired at a higher price or anything like that are probably not going to happen. You can debate whether this is good or bad, but I think that's the, the reason behind why it is such a unusually shaped deal. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I learned something. You're awesome at these M and A knowledge, Aaron. It's amazing. Um, I don't know about that, but I it interests me, so I I poke around a lot. No, because I think there's a lot to dig into. Just even seeing how the deals are made, it, I think it shows a lot into what comes next to the company and what their strategy is. It's very interesting. Yeah, thanks for bringing. You're you're hundred percent correct on that as well. Because as I say, there was this Vivendi tried to buy them many years ago, and that was going to be a hostile takeover, and they resisted it with everything they could have. And you're uh, in doing this deal, that means that that can no longer happen. And that was always the thing that they feared. So uh, yeah, wow, Aaron dropping the truth bombs. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> they won't tell you that in the PR spin. So you got to come exactly. to guess for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Seb, Roblox. Yeah, so the Roblox developer conference happened this past weekend. And it's a really interesting conference for a variety of reasons. One, it's on Saturday and Friday. Uh, it's probably a function of developer age or some type of t- targeting thereof. Uh, it's painful the older you are. So I suppose that's also built into the idea ideation of it. Uh, but it really inspired a couple of macro things, right? So first is they've, for another straight year, they've come out on stage and said, hey, here's the things that we want Roblox to do. And, and I really give a lot of credit to Dave Bazuki for, for this uh, sentiment, which is he like states his five-year predictions and I love going through them because they're always such an interesting idea as to someone stating what they want their vision to be. And then on top of that, they actually talked about some things that actually do matter. Not to say that the five-year predictions don't necessarily matter, but there was a lot to be said about, hey, what do, are you trying to be? And I think this is a really important topic in the world you generated gaming uh, as a growing segment is, what are these platforms trying to be? Are they trying to be places where the baby have concerts at? Right? Are they tr- places where we're just playing video games? Right? Like, the, I think these insights are really interesting in part because it's, they're often counter to each other. And so, just to go over a few initial ones, right? So, one of their big pushes is for animation capture tooling, as well as for providing more fidelity into their game experience. The flip side of this is that most research suggests that people don't care about the fidelity of the game. 
that they actually care about the game loop themselves. And fidelity is like this thing that uh, investors care more about and, and like creatives and marketers care more about. But they really just care if the game is fun. And so in reality, oftentimes the best way to build out these platforms is to decrease fidelity in exchange for performance, allow more people to enjoy and more people to have fun. So it's always really interesting to see when Roblox comes out and says, hey, the things that we're working on are about increasing fidelity, about growing community, about being a better, vibrant ecosystem. They also announced, uh, they also announced their own immersive ad system, which is a really fun blow to some companies who work in the ad system inside Roblox, which they haven't had before. And then happy to go through a lot of his predictions. But basically, it, it, I, I find that five-year predictions are almost impossible to do. And I always give a lot of credit to anyone who does it. So just really wanted to shout them out for at least giving it a try. That's super interesting. The thing about the fidelity thing, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that hyper-casual is surely the proof of that, how you can get million. I mean, we just talked about Stumble Guys exactly, earlier in the show, yep. right? I mean, yep. ooh, love it. But to, making it all relevant together in the podcast. But it's totally true. If you're having a great time, it doesn't really matter about the fidelity. Uh, you often get people who play like pro-level Battle Royale games. They just turn the texture detail to to zero so they can see through the bushes and shoot people. They just want to min-max the game. It's like people enjoyed experience. Definitely, of course, fidelity can be great for like that initial appeal and wow factor of bringing you in but i would also say that you know machine zone and 4x games with this sort of like here's a video of a game it's not the actual game you'll play but it's a nice looking video is also sort of proof of that too and why we probably should as developers bear in mind that like the fun and the gameplay is the most important thing um for sure and, and on yeah. top of that you 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 touched upon this at the top of the show which was that you know most people are no longer on desktops like we're we're all probably fortunate to have a nice desktop with a nice graphics card and a nice monitor and keyboard mouse. But the vast majority of gamers today, by most definitions, I mean, you can, I'm sure you can have like some type of PC master race definition that's incorrect. But by most definitions, the vast majority of gamers are on mobile. And what's interesting is that not everyone pre-ordered the iPhone 14 Pro last week. Like the vast majority of people don't, right? The vast majority of the world, especially if you get out of Western Europe and the United States, you're talking about devices that are like three, four, five generations off, right? We're talking about the Samsung Galaxy S7, right? Or the iPhone 8. And when you get there, suddenly we start seeing things that I remember having to care about a decade ago and haven't had to care about in a while, which is performance and actual performance testing. And it's, it's been really interesting because we've been in this weird arms race in gaming where people have assumed, hey, like performance doesn't matter. Like everything's going to be performant. Let's just go fidelity to the roof. And now we're seeing a return, especially on platforms like Roblox, but also elsewhere to, hey, actually, you know, all that stuff you learned about data structures and algorithms that you learned like you know, 20 years ago, we're going to start applying that again. Like if, hey, if, you're, if your matrix calculation is really bad, you're going to have a non-performing game. And I think that's sort of the most interesting part about user-generated gaming right now and that it both is bringing in all these new audiences and all these new creators who can make games of all different types to show you that loops don't matter. And then on top of that, if you want to make something higher fidelity, you actually need to be even more engineering focused, more technically savvy. And I think that's a lot to do with what we're seeing inside of, you know, outside of Roblox, inside of some of these ecosystems. It's just like, hey, like, why are you guys doing this? Like, why are you making fidelity matter? How do you move that bar forward and make sure it works on all devices? I, I do also think that it's been proven in gaming that 
the sort of best loops tend to be the ones that win out over time rather than mm-hmm. fidelity. For example, if you take like the rise of sort of the Soul series, which is now Elden Ring on PlayStation, that game could be made to look a lot better than it does. But it's just like the gameplay and the playing it is sort of just so addictive that it just keeps people in for a long time. Call of Duty was always 60 frames per second. Could have made it look nicer by making it 30 frames per second. Turns out that smooth gameplay is a reason why people want to keep playing it again and again. Um, I worked on Street Fighter, similar thing. Could easily right. have made it 30 frames per second, but it turns out that 60 frames per second is where it's at. And um, that's just the feeling, but it's also kind of performance related. And uh, Mario Kart, the same. There's many games. Um, uh, right. Aaron, you say, yeah, I can see you want to say something. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I actually am pretty excited for Roblox to be taking more steps in like a higher fidelity direction, not just because um, it's higher fidelity, but I think it unlocks different art styles that can appeal more to like different types of people for different types of games. Um, And I think like that actually might be underrated and its potential to like to to drive more interest in certain certain directions like i totally agree that like great game loops usually win but i still think that wow factor can matter in in a lot of ways and even like you know one of the largest struggles even at my home trying to play games with my wife is that a lot of times they're not cute enough um like the characters they're they're like they're not cute enough for her to like want to play as and i know that's like probably like very specific but i think you know a lot of different people they probably just like look for different things and the types of games they want to play and the types of like, you know, experiences they want to be immersed in. And I think like when you can broaden that out, like there, there is a greater appeal to more types of people um, in more way in more ways. And so, yeah, there are definitely trade-offs, a lot of, you know, the same, like what you said about game lifts, all that holds true, but I actually am pretty excited to see maybe like what we don't expect, what could come of this. Yeah, Aaron, that's a great point. And part of the reason why I think it's a, a really great point is in part because of the word you said, trade-offs, right? That I think is the thing that we talk about so much in development cycles, but we don't talk about enough publicly, which is every decision you make should be a trade-off. And if it's not a trade-off, it means you haven't considered the alternatives. And I think that's one of the more interesting insights you can have both as a founder, but also as an operator, is that if you don't recognize that the thing you're doing has some trade-off, Mm-hmm. then you aren't really thinking through the whole problem. I completely agree with the idea that especially motion capture is so hard for people to do. If you can introduce us to games, create new dancing type games, that's awesome, right? That's going to open a new world of people who haven't made that type of game before to make that type of game. And we're going to see some really interesting things come out of that. And they should understand also that that is totally fine from a creator standpoint. I also would caution though, especially game developers who are taking a professional attack to realize, hey, by introducing motion capture into your game, by introducing physics engines into your game, by trying to increase the fidelity of it, you do actually lose out on some users just from a function of they can't play your game. And that's super important. One, one last thing I'll say on the fidelity side, because uh, I think there's a lot more to unpack in here, is that the best mental model, in my opinion, to figure out if you care about fidelity is just remember the first game you played and how much you enjoyed it. And more importantly, how good you thought it looked at the time, right? And I think that's one of the fun things is that, uh, you know, gold, we, we talked about GoldenEye earlier. Uh, GoldenEye is a game that looks on Switch really good to me. But in reality, it looks exactly like what I remember it looking like 25 years ago, 
right? And I think that is uh, the, the beauty of gaming is that Brood War, in my mental model of Brood War, looks so much better than it actually does. <laughs> when I think about when I played, you know, Mario 3, I was like, wow, the graphic quality of this game is out of this world. How could they possibly get better? Right? Like that's the type of mental memory people have about games. And I think uh, Anil's point around the Machine Zone video is actually something that we should probably all be doing a lot more of. And maybe this is what oh, it's tied into Netflix. We should just be creating Netflix shows that like showcase how cute and gorgeous and awesome things look and then have them play a 8-bit game that's incredibly performant. And they're like, oh, you know, just imagine that these are the, the Targaryen dragons. They're 8-bits now, but they're the same dragons. I was just going to ask, I'd so love to, to also hear your thoughts on like the immersive ad side of thing uh, with Roblox and what they're kind of doing on the cutting edge of that. Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is a major sector of quote-unquote metaverse development, right? Advertising is maligned by a lot of people. But what people don't recognize is that if you change monetization mechanisms, you actually increase the, uh, the space for content in general. So, for example, if you don't have advertising, you probably don't have these like random educational videos on the Punic War <laughs> inside on YouTube, right? Like, it allows for more niche development and more niche types of games that aren't reliant on in-app purchases or subscriptions. And so to that extent, this has been a, this, this is a known fact of gaming. You've had companies like Anzu and Bloxbigs in particular on Roblox and also on places like Minecraft and even on the Web3 ones like the Central Land trying to create more advertising throughput in order to generate different sources of revenue for these games. Roblox has been always had a love-hate relationship and they love to hate it. They love to hate that other people are doing this. And they're now pushing for it themselves. And so the, if, you, if you're not familiar with the term immersive ads, basically, you're inside the game. There's a billboard in the corner. This doesn't have to be in VR. This doesn't have to be on PC. It could even be on mobile. It's just seeing ads inside the game. The best example of this, I would say, is sponsored content inside of TV shows. So, uh, you know, uh, John Oliver did a great piece about like Subway sponsor content inside of movies and TV. The next time you go watch a movie, uh, for example, if you watch uh, the Multiverse of Madness, new Doctor Strange movie, uh, you know, Jaguar, JBL, the watch company, did a lot of painstaking work to make sure the shots of the watch were constantly in frame, right? So he like always has his watch to watch and the specific watch he has is part of the thing. That's not an accident. There was an account executive who like fought for that and then got that sponsorship in to pay for to offset some of the cost of the movie. And we're starting to see that type of engagement inside of Roblox. They're starting with some immersive banners so that when you're inside the game, you have a rotating banner just like you do, say, walking uh, by a bus station in mm -hmm. San Francisco or New York. Yeah, it's mimicking what humans are already accustomed to putting it into the game. That happens to you when you're walking on the street. There's billboards everywhere. So personally, I think if it's done right, it won't be very disruptive and probably better than having ads monetization where it just pops up an ad and you have to stop what you're doing to, to see that ad. Yeah, and the technology around this is really cool too because effectively uh, the way it's being solved for right now is there are companies like MVP Index, which are you know, analytics companies that then capture it on client side as opposed to server side. And that's really important for CPM and CPI analysis. And so we're going to see some improvements there. The big concern I think everyone should have is the opposite of your concern, Maria, where it's like it's done too well, right? The concern I think we have, especially on platforms like Roblox, but also generally, is that we're going to do some like 
and to to quote a movie from 10 years ago like inception level of implementation here right like if if the ad integration is too good people just assume that that's what it is it's uh, it's like how kleenex replaced facial tissues as a word right and so I understand one of the big concerns Roblox had coming in, and I certainly think a lot of people in the games world have, is that the ad integration is too good. We might be able to like finally change people's behaviors, which you know is a very like um, speculative fiction type of approach to ads, which I don't think we're nearly close enough to, but probably worth mentioning. Well, is there any other takes on the conference? We're a little bit over with with time. We can dive into oh, yeah. one more. Last take is that we should be really happy that we were born in the previous generation. This next generation of kids are amazing, and they're <laughs> they're going to destroy and eat all, all our lunches. And I'm super excited for them to make me unemployed or retired, depending on how it goes. <laughs> because of what you've seen created on yeah, UGC? no, I just 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 walking around the conference and seeing. People of all ages, some of them young and so young, they have to be with their parents, but they've already like made a hundred grand off of their game. Like this is that's wow. awesome. And by the way, like the the like the variant, like there there's just so many more you know people of color, women, non-binary folks that you don't see typically in the game space at games conferences like E3 like ten years ago. E3 wow. 10 years ago, yeah. everyone was pretty much well, white men for the most part, right? And so like that movement has been really cool. And it's just awesome to see someone who's like 19 and like already has their life figured out in terms of like, I just want to make cool stuff. I'm like, man, when I was 19, I just wanted to uh, insert beer here. So. <laughs> one, one last question I wanted to ask you, Seb, since you're, since you're here and you, you work, you know, with Infinite Canvas, um, you know, and the, the UGC realm mm-hmm. too, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, I guess a lot of teases around like the the rise of like the next UGC platforms. Like you know, obviously Manticore is out there. We know Epic is working on stuff, etc. Um, Roblox has the advantage that it spends like over two hundred million dollars a quarter on R and D. But I just wanted to get your take on like the next like two three years. Like how big of a threat to Roblox are all these other platforms that will probably emerge um, sooner sooner than later, or will Roblox you know, just continue to to dominate because of network effects, et cetera. Yeah. In in a 12 to 24 month period, there's almost no chance unless it's specifically Fortnite that someone's going to generate a audience large enough to compute and overtake Roblox. Now, the hope I think for all of us is that we want to see more platforms. You don't want a YouTube-centric world where it's only one platform winning it out. The downside is that, especially for user-generated, you just need a lot of people. The creator, uh, you know, creator consumer ratio, even at ten thousand to one, still requires you have a, a million people play. And so, I think one of the hardest things for these new platforms is there's a chicken and egg problem where they can't have people make cool stuff on their platforms until they have people on their platforms. And so, I would say, you know, if you had asked me this question a year ago, I'd be more bullish because there was a, a cost of capital was lower, and so there was an argument to be like, hey, you can fund someone. You give them $100 million and run out and acquire a bunch of users. You're probably not going to see that in the next funding cycle of a year or so. As a result, what you're going to end up with something that's very different where people are just going to need to like grow their platforms organically like the old days. And if that's the case, I think you should almost always bet on the incumbent. That said, I am still very bullish on Fortnite Creative. I think they're probably the guys who are second row to use a Formula One reference, ready to take on Max Verstappen or whoever they're taking on right now. So 
that I think is probably the biggest platform. Every other platform is just so sorely lacking on users right now. You, if you had to uh, predict the trend line, you predict that they don't increase their users exponentially over 12 months. Gotcha. Cool. Thanks. That's really interesting. I think on, on that, sorry, just one last question. Again, Seb, you're here. I don't know when you're coming back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, by the way. <laughs> no, it's awesome to have you here. So I believe in Bitgraft, you, also, you invest in UGC as one of your expertises. Mm-hmm. What do you predict is going to cause the next huge step in UGC? Time. <laughs> time. <laughs> no, this, is, this, is, this is not what people want to hear, but typically speaking, time is the greatest determinant. And, and I'll give you a quick example. Uh, the, in, in the United States, the highest spending cohort, bar none, is women 35 to 49. It's not even close. Like they're just like the highest spending cohort of spenders, right? And, but they're like, hey, don't, they don't play games yet is like the question. But it's not that they don't play games. It's that like the people who play games just aren't in that cohort yet. Like I certainly know 27 to 33-year-old women who spend thousands of dollars against an impact, right? That's a reality. They're just not in the 35 to 49 cohort yet. And I think in a similar vein, we have this entire generation of Gen Z that are making some really cool user-generated products leveraging these ecosystems, making you cool games that we've never seen before, don't even understand. I certainly don't understand them. Like, they just need time. Like, you just need some wait, wait a few years to see if they come up and, and we're going to start seeing that trickle in. So if, if, you were, if you were to ask specifically what the biggest variable is, is just check back in a couple of years, check back in five years, check back in 10 years, right? The smaller variables are, you know, macro-based Blockchain could be a variable that's really driving consumer value to users and thus incentivizing user-generated content creation. We haven't seen that quite yet. Netflix, YouTube, uh, Snapchat, TikTok, these platforms are traditionally not in gaming, are thinking about coming into gaming. Netflix already has. Those guys and gals, as they come into gaming, like, you know, that's what we're going to start seeing really blow up. And so, but that even then is, is controlled more by time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Anything else from anyone? Or or quite. No, it's been a fun conversation, though. Yeah, yeah. Lots of interesting topics. uh, This was by coincidence, but we ended up doing case studies of 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 business strategies in different um, segments of the industry. It's very very interesting. That's a good title. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, there you go. Title decided. Uh, Yeah, you can find us on Discord if you have anything anything to add. Um, Thank you so much for joining. Review. It's awesome to have you here. And we'll see you again next week.